Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Appreciate it. All right, good evening, everyone. We we begin the readout tonight with a unified display of solidarity in Brussels, where Western leaders stood shoulder to shoulder in an extraordinary series of summits hosted by NATO, the group of seven industrialized nations and the European Union. We gather at the critical time for our security. We are united in condemning the Kremlin's unprovoked aggression and in our support for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Western leaders continue to roll out a series of measures to increase the pressure on Russian President Vladimir Putin, while avoiding steps that could lead to a wider war on the continent. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the 29 members of the NATO alliance and once again pleaded for a more robust response. The Ukrainian army has been resisting for a month in unequal conditions. And I have been repeating the same thing for a month now. To save people in our cities, Ukraine needs military assistance without restrictions. We have shown what our standards are capable of and how much we can give to common security in Europe and the world. How much we can do to protect against aggression, against everything we value, what you value. But NATO has yet to show what the alliance can do to save people. The Ukrainian president also accused Russia of using phosphorus bombs targeting innocent civilians and children. U.S. defense officials say they cannot confirm those allegations. It is difficult to verify the reports without U.S. personnel on the ground. White phosphorus is not banned by international law. Earlier this week, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told CNN that Russia could consider using nuclear weapons if it felt there was, quote, an existential threat on our country. In a press conference, President Biden warned that this could and would trigger response. We would respond if he uses it. The nature of the response would depend on the nature of the use. According to The New York Times, the Biden administration has also assembled a national security team called the Tiger Team to assess various responses if Russia were to expand its war beyond Ukraine or use weapons of mass destruction. In a first, NATO leaders agreed to provide Ukraine with equipment to protect against chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear threats, as well as additional cybersecurity assistance. A U.S. official told the United, the Associated Press that Western nations were discussing the possibility of providing anti-ship weapons amid concerns that Russia will launch amphibious assaults along the Black Sea coast. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg and President Biden warned China, meanwhile, against coming to Moscow's rescue. The leaders of Poland and other countries bordering Ukraine pressed the U.S. and fellow European countries to step up their assistance with the growing refugee crisis. To that point, President Biden announced that the United States would welcome 100,000 Ukrainian refugees with the goal of reuniting families. More than 3.5 million refugees have fled Ukraine in recent weeks, including more than 2 million to Poland. With me now, former U.S. ambassador to NATO, Ivo Dodler, who is the president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and Amna Nawaz, chief correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Thank you uh, both for being here. Um, Mr. Dodler, I want to start with you because 
I, I felt that in watching uh, President Zelensky's address to NATO, he posed a question and a challenge that I think is legitimate to ask. If indeed NATO is the strongest military alliance in the world, in effect, then why is it that they seem completely, I won't say impotent, but they seem so reluctant to act for fear of, um, you know, provoking Vladimir Putin? Putin seems pretty well provoked. He seems pretty unpredictable. And the fact that they're even talking about the fact that he might launch up to nuclear or chemical strikes against Ukraine shows that they know that he's unstable and unpredictable. Then is it contradictory then that NATO takes all of this action to avoid provocation? Well, I mean, clearly, on the one hand, uh, Zelensky has every right. And if I were in his shoes, would uh, do exactly the same thing and ask for everything he possibly could to help his country uh, to defend itself up and to including uh, sending NATO troops uh, to for that purposes. NATO needs to make a calculation about the relative uh, balance between helping Ukraine and it is doing an, an awful lot in terms of uh, sending equipment of all kinds, uh, some of which we know about, frankly, some of which we don't know about, providing intelligence information to help the Ukrainians uh, defend themselves, and they're doing a, a, a very, very good job at it. And on the other hand, uh, do we want to have a direct confrontation between Russia uh, and the United States and NATO? This is something that since 1945, we've worked very, very hard to avoid having nuclear powers directly engaged in military confrontation. It's a big step. Uh, I think President uh, Biden indicated, I think Secretary General Stoltenberg indicated that the discussions at NATO suggested that there is now more serious thought about that possible step, particularly in response to uh, the use of chemical weapons. But it's not something that you do uh, willy nilly. There are more and larger interests at stake. In fact, uh, including, uh, of course, the security of the very NATO members that today are not at war. Let me let me just to put a finer point on it. And I, and I take your point. Absolutely. But I want to play. This is uh, NATO Secretary Jen Stoltenberg. Um, he was asked in two different arenas about the potential use of chemical weapons um, in this arena. And first by our own Am Andrea Mitchell and then uh, by our own Lester Holt. So I just want to play those two pieces of sound. Just um, take a listen. Any use, for instance, of, of uh, chemical weapons would totally change the nature of the conflict. It will be a blatant violation of international uh, law, and, uh, and it will have wide-ranging, severe uh, consequences. Do you take anything off the table when it comes to responding to chemical weapons? We are in a very dangerous situation. So if I started to speculate about the uh, different options, I would only make an unpredictable and dangerous situation even more dangerous and even more unpredictable. My main message is that we are there to protect and defend all allies, protect uh, and defend every inch of NATO territory. You know, Amna Navaz, I think the challenge that a lot of people have in watching what's happening is that, you know, in the case, for instance, of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, um, the U.S. went to the um, United Nations and said, well, we know they, they have chemical and biological weapons, and we suspect they have nuclear weapons. We have to act to stop them from acting. In the case of Syria, we know for sure that they used chemical weapons, that they've used the most vicious treatment and, and tactics against the citizens of that country in order to preserve um, the, the, the Bashar al-Assad um, regime. So when the world says that it needs to take military action because we know that chemical or nuclear weapons are on the table. But then in this case, 
we say, well, we can't do anything because they have chemical and nuclear weapons. It strikes a lot of people as hypocritical. And I wonder if that is the way people are seeing it in countries that have faced us or faced other um, instances of Russian aggression. Joy, I think you are centering in on the question that we uh, who cover the White House and who have been in touch with a number of European officials have really been honing in on, which is what would it take? Right. Where is the line if there is so much concern about the use of chemical weapons and there is so much concern about the potential use of tactical nuclear weapons, as we've heard so many officials say now, then, then where is the line? Um, and you heard the secretary general state right there. Of course, we will respond. The chemical weapon deployment would absolutely change the nature of this. Our follow up question is always. And then what? What? How will you respond? There's, there's a couple of things at play here. And I'm so glad you raised the issue of Syria, because I don't think we talk enough about about the fact that there's a very clear and direct line from the Russian intervention in Syria, the brutal aerial bombardment that they played out there, and the fact that the U.S. and the rest of the world failed to respond, even when the Assad regime did deploy those chemical weapons on their own population, because many argue that did empower Putin, and that the same playbook that was deployed in Syria is now being deployed here. Uh, and so the questions that we ask are, where are some of those lines? We're starting to see some of those details come out now. I do think the long this conflict goes on and the more the U.S. and NATO allies are forced to consider what are the potential actions here, um, some of those questions we've been asking and continue to ask are starting to get some details around them. When you're providing those defensive weapons, and let's be clear, the White House officials we talked to draw a very clear line between the provision of humanitarian aid and military support and defensive weapon systems, these anti-tank and anti-air systems they're providing, and offensive weapons or the implementation and enforcement of a no-fly zone, as we know President Zelensky has continued to ask for. They see those as two very different things, one bringing the U.S. into direct conflict with Russia, which is what they are trying to avoid. But we're starting to see some of those details come out. What happens if there is a Russian strike specifically on a NATO convoy that's moving to supply Ukrainian troops? What happens if there is a deployment of a chemical weapon and some kind of radiological or biological chemical cloud ends up drifting into NATO territory? Is that, is that a violation? Is that an attack on a NATO territory? And does that trigger a response? To some degree, this is new territory for many of these leaders, because we are now seeing war on the European continent for the first time in 70 years. And these leaders were, many of them, not in place the last time many of these issues were as front and real and imminent as they are right now. Yeah. And I mean, Evo Dodler, I'm going to bring it back to you in that case. So, I mean, how does NATO look at those questions? Um, you know, there is now, you know, Biden and others are talking about doing things like kicking Russia out of the G20. OK, so then they'd be an even more sort of isolated rogue nation. Fine. They'd be out of and they shouldn't be. It doesn't seem logical that they should be in the G20. But that doesn't strike me as anything that would stop Putin from doing what he's doing. Nothing in the past has not in Syria, not in Chechnya, not ever. And he has sort of been taught by the world that he can get away with increasing levels of thuggery. Um, and it's only now that he's doing it right in the heart of Europe that people are saying, wait, there has to be something. But what would be the, the answer to those questions? Because right now, NATO seems to be mostly concerned about not escalating. Uh, well, I think that's all about to change. And I think the the kind of conversations that we are heard in the last few days and, and that was taking place in the NATO uh, summit is starting to change the 
conversation away from what we won't do to what we need to think about what we might have to do. Clearly, uh, any direct attack, any missile, anything that falls on NATO territory uh, immediately raises uh, uh, the issue of an attack against one is an attack against all and would uh, mean that NATO would have to respond. It could respond in a whole variety of different ways, uh, including taking out the, the, the systems that uh, that target it, that, that launched the missile or uh, or the airplane that uh, struck uh, NATO territory. So that's one thing. You now have this conversation about chemical weapons and, and, and nuclear weapons and the, the two uh, places you, you stories you played on uh, young Stoltenberg's answer uh, you know Stoltenberg is not in a position to be out front from the NATO members he he can't uh, be where the NATO members are uh, but he is indicating that things are going to change the president uh, uh, Biden himself made very clear you had it on the top of, uh, of your screen there will be a NATO response and the type of response depends on the nature of, of the use my own view this is personal, it's not uh, where uh, NATO is yet, is that the certain kinds of chemical uh, weapons use and certainly nuclear weapons use should lead to the United States and NATO intervening on the on behalf of, of Ukraine to defend it uh, and to see that Russia is defeated in Ukraine. Um, I think we're very close to that point. We may, in fact, be telling this to Vladimir Putin uh, 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 quietly. Uh, these are the kinds of things that are perhaps best told and said quietly and not publicly. The purpose here, of course, is not for NATO to get involved. The purpose is here is to deter Vladimir Putin from further escalating. But if he does, then clearly we have a very different situation and it becomes necessary for the United States, for NATO to consider directly, militarily to become involved in this conflict. And, and to, I think that, that makes a lot of sense to me, certainly. Um, Amna Navaz, let me ask you one, one more question, one final question, just to, to shift gears just a little bit. We, we now see clearly a refugee crisis, a crisis of women and children um, moving across the continent in a way that we haven't seen since Syria. Um, the Syria movement of, of human beings fleeing that country, which was not mostly women and children, it was a mix of men, women and children, it changed governments, it destabilized governments, it, it, it in part produced Brexit. And the, are there conversations happening among European leaders now and um, uh, with the U.S. involved of how this refugee crisis is going to uh, potentially impact the governments surrounding Ukraine uh, and the North, Atl the North Atlantic Alliance broadly, more broadly? So I think you've absolutely seen uh, a very clear difference in the way that people who are fleeing instability and war and conflict, that they had no part in creating from Ukraine, how they are being welcomed into neighboring countries versus how people who were fleeing the same factors that they played no part in creating in Syria or Afghanistan or other places were also welcomed into those same some of those same nations. And, and that is a distinction worth making and worth pointing out because there was an existing global refugee crisis before Russia invaded Ukraine. There were some 80 million displaced people around the world from a number of different nations. Um, and we've just added another 10 million people to that list, both internally displaced and refugees. So I think there's more conversation now among leaders about how to better coordinate, because even if the war ended tomorrow, many of these millions of people still need help. 
Yeah, indeed. And then the, there's going to be an entire country that's going to need to be rebuilt. And as you make a very valid point, not just one country, because we still have Afghanistan, we still have Syria. All of these things are still in play. Um, thank you both, Ambassador Evo Dodler and Amna Nawaz. Thank you both. Um, up next on the readout. The numbers are staggering. More than half of all Ukrainian children have now been driven from their homes. We will get a live update from Ukraine. Also, the disgraceful, but not at all surprising, Republican treatment of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. What it tells us about them and what we learned about her. And a former Manhattan prosecutor who investigated Trump says he believes Trump is guilty of numerous felonies. Plus, new reporting tonight on Ginny Thomas and the dozens of text messages she sent her pen pal, Mark Meadows, to encourage him to overturn the election. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. We are one month into Russia's unprovoked war in Ukraine that's caused a horrific humanitarian crisis. More than half of Ukrainian children have been displaced, forced to leave their homes. According to UNICEF, 50 Ukrainian children have become refugees every minute since the war started. This as Russia continues to indiscriminately shell civilians, with the city of Mariupol utterly destroyed. New drone footage from Mariupol shows a line of people waiting for humanitarian aid, with Ukraine saying that the Russian military hasn't allowed a humanitarian convoy to enter Mariupol for the third day in a row. More than 2,700 people were able to evacuate the city today. But in a truly Orwellian twist, the Washington Post reports that a Russia TV anchor blamed Ukrainian nationalists for scenes of absolute destruction in Mariupol, where Russian forces have consistently and, unrelent and unrelentingly bombarded the city. Meanwhile, Ukraine is also accusing Russia of forcibly detaining more than 400,000 Ukrainian citizens, including more than 2,000 children, and deporting them to Russia. Russia also continues to hit the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv and its surrounding areas, but Ukrainian forces say they've been able to push back the Russian army from reaching the capital. And the Ukrainian people remain resilient with artists in Kyiv making bulletproof vests. And in the middle of downtown Lviv, to, downtown Lviv today, hundreds of flak jackets, helmets, sniper scopes, and drones were loaded into cars headed for the Eastern Front, thanks to a Lithuanian group called Blue Yellow. With me now from Lviv is NBC News correspondent Cal Perry. I was interested today um, to see all the reports, essentially, that Russian forces have been pushed back from the capital. Um, give us updates on sort of the military movement of the Russian um, onslaught on this country. 
So it's sort of remarkable, right? A month into this war now, a month that the Ukrainian president didn't expect to happen or certainly didn't want to spook people uh, by saying it was going to happen. And here we are a month and Ukrainian forces now finally on the offensive near the capital of Kiev, about 40 miles to the west. Um, in Kiev, we understand that there was this counterattack in the last 24 hours um, and a number of Russian vehicles, tanks, armored APCs were destroyed as those lines were either moved back or Ukrainian forces actually broke through those lines. The United Kingdom Ministry of Defense said it's probably likely that Ukrainian forces are going to encircle a group of Russian soldiers. That will only increase the number of POWs that Ukraine already has. The numbers of Russian soldiers that have been killed, whether it's between 7,000 and up to 14,000, those are heavy losses, Joy. And that's something I don't think people expected here. Now, in response to that, it seems like Russia is punishing the civilian population of this country. Mariupol is starting to look like Aleppo in Syria. This is a city that has been largely destroyed. That drone footage is truly apocalyptic. And you have a city of civilians basically living underground, fighting every day for survival. The question here for President Zelensky, for NATO, is how to come about peace. And look, President Zelensky finished his address to NATO today by saying it is time for peace. He wants to talk. The question, though, is a month into this war, tens of thousands of Russian soldiers on Ukrainian territory, some of them now building defensive positions. What does that look like? What does it look like a peace agreement? Does it look like a ceasefire in the east? What happens to those Russian troops that have surrounded the capital? This is a country that is now fully at war joy. And the statistics that you laid out, 10 million people internally displaced, 4 million refugees, and half the children of this country displaced since the fighting began. It is almost impossible to imagine. Uh, indeed it is. Uh, Cal Perry, thank you very much. Always appreciate you. And with me now is Lisa Yasko, a member of the Ukrainian parliament. And I don't know if you were able to hear uh, what Cal Perry was saying in his report, um, MP Yasko, but I wonder, in your mind, uh, with cities like Mariupol completely destroyed and, in Cal Perry's words, looking apocalyptic at this point, um, and NATO meeting uh, now to try to decide what they're going to do about it, in your view, as a member of the Ukrainian government, what would peace even look like? Well, uh, first of all, it's been a month of the war and it's um, devastating months uh, that changed our lives. And you mentioned Mariupol. It's a real genocide what is happening there. And I'm just very scared on a personal level every day to, to hear what actually is happening there. It's very hard to imagine even in, in uh, in the films of horror, that this actually is the reality, but uh, this is how our life looks like right now, unfortunately, in Ukraine. Uh, regarding the peace and what NATO could, could do, well, we definitely understand that the Putin understands only the language of force and strength. So now it's the question of the military assistance, of course, because without it, uh, Putin will just smile and continue uh, targeting more civilians, ruining more lives, infrastructure, and definitely um, a risk, a high risk of nuclear and chemical weapon that he can use is, uh, is increasing. So the question is, how do we stop Putin? How do we end war? And this is what the international cooperation needs to address right now very urgently, because we don't have time for, for, for more 
negotiations. Um, of course, diplomatic efforts are important, but only with strength and with the military force. This is the language that Putin will understand. You know, uh, I, I totally feel what you're saying. I mean, as somebody who is experiencing this horror, this nightmare yourself and feeling this fear every day for yourself and your country and your loved ones, I wonder, just as a member of the government of Ukraine, what do you think about NATO at this point? Does NATO seem like a strong military alliance to you, something that would benefit um, Ukraine to be a part of? Well, we're not hiding and we're saying that we wish that NATO could uh, act faster on many decisions. But in the same time, we see that uh, NATO has never been so united as it is right now. And let's be honest, uh, this war is the biggest war in Europe since the Second World War. And I'm sure that's a challenge, existential challenge for many international organizations and uh, security alliances who actually didn't have such challenges for many, many years. So this is um, now the moment of truth and ability uh, to rebuild the purpose and all the tools that can be used to uh, make sure that tomorrow we have peace. If and when this ends, and it will end eventually, um, uh, and it does feel like it will end with Ukraine ultimately being victorious because Ukraine is the more valorous uh, actor here um, and obviously has the greater motivation. Would you want Ukraine to join NATO? Do you think that it would prevent a repeat of this in the future? Well, I'm sure that uh, from a month ago till uh, all the future that we have that Ukrainian army and Ukrainian society is one of the strongest in terms of how we are able to defend our land uh, with all the tools that are available I'm talking now about the weapon but also uh, on, on the human level and and that resistance and strength and that unity I'm sure that will be central to the NATO alliance. I'm sure that European security is not possible without Ukraine. And I want to remind also that Euro-Atlantic integration and NATO um, is a part um, th like that represents the will of Ukrainian people and it's written in our constitution. So it cannot be taken away uh, in any way. Of course, this is with us. Well, uh, as I, I don't even remember who said it, so I apologize for not quoting the person by name. But when this is all over, it may be that Europe uh, and NATO might want to join Ukraine um, because uh, there is no doubt that Ukraine is an incredibly strong country with very, very brave people. Um, MP Lisa thank Yasko, thank you very, very much. Stay safe. And up next on The Readout, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson demonstrated admirable poise while facing the angry, scowling, snarling, dog-whistling Republicans. And while their claims have been debunked numerous times, they are still attacking her. Senator Maisie Hirono joins me next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. 
wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson are now over, thankfully. Today, the Senate Judiciary Committee heard from outside witnesses, including members of the American Bar Association, who all praised Judge Jackson's qualifications to sit on the highest court in the land. Judge Jackson did not appear at today's hearing, but she was on Capitol Hill meeting with senators. At the same time, Republicans continued their attacks. Today, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell unsurprisingly announced that he will not support Judge Jackson, as if he ever would have, and complained of what he called her lack of candor in responding to questions. Now, although she didn't seem to mind, although he didn't seem to mind the questions themselves with all the dog whistles that some of his fellow colleagues opted to use. But through it all, Judge Jackson remained poised with a graceful temperament, even during moments like this one with America's well and Canada's most ridiculous person, Senator Ted Cruz. Do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that that babies are racist? Senator... (laughs) I do not believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are racist or though they are not valued or though they are less than. As New York Times best-selling author and friend of the show, Ellie Mastal, points out, that seemingly unending pause from the judge illustrated how power and privilege work in America. Mistal writes, in that pregnant moment, everybody in the whole country who was watching got to see whiteness at work. Everybody knew that Ted Cruz got to stand up there and call Katanji Brown Jackson whatever he wanted to, and nobody would stop him. Everybody knew that Jackson could not respond in kind if she wanted the job. And everybody knew that in the same situation, Brett Kavanaugh could and did sneer at his questioners, threaten the Senate with political retribution, and declare his undying love for beer without hurting his chances at unaccountable lifetime power. Power he now holds. With me now, Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii, a member of the Judiciary Committee. And Senator, I want to first thank you um, for before uh, Senator Cory Booker came on and, and gave us light and a sermon and, and gave us life again, you gave me life because your questioning, which is not something that you don't do in every situation, was the first sort of sane moment that day, other than John Ossoff being the adult in the room early on. But I want to play that for those who missed it. This is Senator Hirono owning it. Since you became a legal adult, Have you ever made unwanted requests for sexual favors or committed any verbal or physical harassment or assault of a sexual nature? I have not. Have you ever faced discipline or entered into a settlement related to this kind of conduct? I have not. I want to ask you, I I, I think I all caps to praise you for doing that because for me, the court's 
it's, I struggle with the Supreme Court because it gets to decide issues of how you and I as women can decide what to do with our bodies when two yes. of the six conservative members have been credibly accused of sexual violations against women, either harassment or worse, in the case of Kavanaugh, of sexually assaulting his teenage, teenage friend um, and two other women who are in college. So why do you ask that question? And is it related in some way to Kavanaugh or something else? I started asking that question before Judge Kavanaugh came before us. And this was a, during a time when Me Too movement was uh, happening. And I didn't want uh, the, uh, the fact that women have had to endure, basically women, of this kind of assault and harassment since, what, as I put it, time immemorial. I did not want that swept under the rug because, note, we did have a president who was a sexual predator. So uh, I thought it was really important. So I've been asking that of everyone, every nominee on any of my committees for years now. And the thing is, is that both um, Clarence Thomas and Kavanaugh were accused of that. They, if they were being honest, would have had to answer yes, and yet it didn't stop them from getting power. Just as I think that the, the, the different standards for men and women could not be more glaring, especially for women of color, right? Because if you, Senator Hirono, had checked your phone to see my tweet, you would have been ridiculed <laughs> utterly yeah. and people would have considered yeah. you an unserious person because you are a woman of color. Yet a man, Ted Cruz, literally got busted by an L.A. Times photographer attacking Judge Jackson on purpose in order to get tweets and then checking them. Mm -hmm. In serving in that body, how do you deal with these glaring, glaring inconsistencies? Well, fortunately, when those attacks were lodged against uh, Judge Jackson, she handled herself so well, as you say, calmly, with uh, dignity. And I've been asked many times by reporters, why do you think that uh, uh, people like Cruz, Holly, uh, you know, why do they go on the attack? And I say, because they're running for president. Let's be honest here. Yeah. You, and you pointed out, I thought was also important in your questioning, the fact that Josh Hawley, in fact, has voted to confirm um, men to yes. the federal bench who have almost identical sentencing records to Judge yes. Jackson. Um, that hypocrisy yes. felt particularly glaring to me. Did it to you? Oh, definitely. That's why I brought it up. And that's why I asked uh, Judge Jackson, do you think that these judges who have been sentencing along the lines that you have, that uh, they are a soft somehow on child pornographers? Of course, the answer is no. This is what you call a double standard. And uh, they also attacked Judge Jackson for representing a, a black woman representing poor people. You know, you could call these things dog whistles. Double yeah, standards, that's for sure. They certainly are. I want to show a picture to everyone uh, before I let you go. This is a New York Times photo of Judge Jackson and her and her beautiful daughter um, from the hearing. And the photo was taken by a woman named Sarah Beth Maney, the first black photography fellow of the New York Times D.C. Mm -hmm. Bureau. Um, we got a, a real joy out of listening um, to Senator Cory Booker talk about what it meant to him to see Judge Jackson in this position. Um, and I wonder if you could close this segment by telling us Seeing that image of this incredible black woman, accomplished woman on her way to the Supreme Court, very likely, we hope, what did it mean to you? Everything, because as the hours wore on and she kept getting attacked in an unfounded way, uh, I, 
it truly came home to me how important she will be on the Supreme Court. That representation, the kind of diversity she brings to the court is so, so important. And after Corey did his incredible affirmation, I told my colleagues, okay, we should all shut up and go home. And that's it. So I have this lovely picture of Corey, my friend Barbara Lee, who was out there, and me hugging each other. Because when Corey did his affirmation, as I call it, as far as I'm concerned, there was not a dry eye in the house. I It certainly brought tears to my eyes to know that this incredibly talented, committed woman, black woman, strong black woman was going to be on the Supreme Court. It made me so proud. Well, Senator Maisie Hirono, um, I I hope you don't get tired of being in the Senate, because when they when the first Asian American uh, (laughs) justice gets on the court, I want you to come back on here. And all we're going to do for the whole segment is look into the camera at Josh Hawley (laughs) and all his friends like, yeah, deal with it. Grow up. (laughs) The world is changing. Senator Maisie Hirono, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. you. Okay, cheers. Up next, thank you, aloha. Up next, guilty of numerous felony violations. That is the assessment of one of the Manhattan prosecutors who investigated Donald Trump for fraud, according to a stunning new report in the New York Times. He and his colleague resigned last month after it appeared the Manhattan DA was reluctant to indict Trump. His resignation letter warns of a grave failure of justice. And that is next. About a month ago, two high-ranking prosecutors leading the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation into Donald Trump abruptly resigned. Those prosecutors, Carrie Dunn and Mark Pomerantz, submitted their resignations after the newly elected DA indicated that he had doubts about moving forward with a case against Trump. It was a huge blow to the prosecution, and now we have new details on what motivated their departures. On Wednesday, the New York Times published the resignation letter of Special Assistant District Attorney Pomerantz. It was sent to Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg just last month, saying, quote, I believe that Donald Trump is guilty of numerous felony violations of the penal law. He also wrote, I have worked too hard as a lawyer and for too long now to now to become a passive participant in what I believe to be a grave failure of justice. Joining me now is Glenn Kirshner, MSNBC legal analyst and a former federal prosecutor. And Glenn, I read that letter in shock, not just about the language that he directly used with Alvin Bragg, but about this. Let me read this. Um, This is part of the letter as well. In late 2021, then District Attorney uh, Cyrus Vance directed a thorough review of the facts and law relating to Mr. Trump's financial statements. Mr. Vance had been intimately involved in our investigation, attending grand jury presentations, sitting in on certain witness interviews and receiving regular reports about the progress of the investigation. He concluded the facts warranted prosecution, and he directed the team to present evidence to a grand jury and to seek indictment of Mr. Trump and other defendants as soon as reasonably be possible. How on earth could Alvin Bragg turn down this prosecution? Well, that is a question, Joy, that the people of New York, and by extension, the people of the nation, deserve an answer to. Because, you know, Mark Pomerantz, people should remember, he, you know, he was a very accomplished federal prosecutor. He headed up the appellate division at the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office. He then did a second stint in that office. He headed up the criminal division. And in that capacity, he successfully tried mob boss John Gotti. He also served as a criminal defense attorney in white collar cases, and he is universally regarded as a white collar crime subject 
subject matter expert. I mean, he, he knows how to prosecute. He knows a case that can be proved beyond a reasonable doubt when he sees it. And he makes clear in this letter, Joy, the evidence supports the conclusion that Donald Trump committed felony crimes and that the evidence can prove him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And he said it's a grave injustice if these charges aren't brought. We're always talking about how we don't know what's going on in the Department of Justice. Well, guess Mm -hmm. what? We now know what went on inside the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. They built a case against Donald Trump that could and should have been brought. And Alvin Bragg put a stop to it. And we have no idea why. We enjoy wide latitude when we're exercising prosecutorial discretion, Joy. I exercised that discretion for 30 years. But you know what? Prosecutors can also abuse that discretion. And from the outside, given everything we know, it looks like Bragg abused his discretion. And we need to know more about why he made that decision. And Alvin Bragg is invited to come on the show and explain this because it sure smells like corruption to me. Michael Cohen testified under oath that Donald Trump did exactly what the investigators found that he did. And Cyrus Vance, who was not exactly aggressive about going after the Trump family, let's just be honest, when he was in that job, he even said that he should be prosecuted. Something smells corrupt here, and I think it definitely should be investigated. Um, And the voters of New York should hold Alvin Bragg accountable. Uh, Let's move on to Ginny Thomas. Speaking of corruption— Let me read this. This is a news story that broke in The Washington Post late today. Virginia Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, urged White House Chief Mark Meadows, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, to pursue unrelenting efforts to overturn the 2020 election text show. On November 10, after news organizations had projected Joe Biden, the winner based on state vote totals, Thomas wrote to Meadows, help this great president stand firm. Mark, with lots of exclamation points, you are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governments in the precipice. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist in our history. Here's what makes this even more corrupt. Yes, we know that she's like a QAnon right-wing looney tune, that she's always been that. But she's married to one of the justices of the Supreme Court and the only justice out of nine who voted this way. The new Jane Mayer pointing out he did not recuse himself. He was the only vote to block the January 6th committee from getting Trump's papers. Mark Meadows filed a supporting brief for that. And Ginny's texts were at stake. This is pure corruption on the part of the Thomases. Your thoughts? You know, Joy, I don't say this lightly, but based on what we're learning, this feels like a deeply unethical decision by Justice Thomas not to recuse himself from having anything to do with making decisions about the insurrection. Because we now know, courtesy of these texts, which really are blockbuster, that Jenny Thomas was using her position and her obvious connections to urge Mark Meadows to keep Donald Trump installed in the presidency unconstitutionally. I don't think a Hollywood scriptwriter could come up with anything like this. And I think that the two natural questions based on the reporting about this text exchange between Jenny Thomas and Mark Meadows are one Will the J6 committee subpoena the the spouse of a sitting Supreme Court justice, or would that be viewed as some kind of third rail? I think, you know, no one is above the law. I've heard that before. Well, Hmm. let's prove it by treating Ginny Thomas the way we would treat any other witness and beyond, because we don't know if she's just a witness 
or she may have some criminal exposure for what happened on January 6th or what happened before with respect to organizing it or what happened after with respect to either covering it up or giving aid and comfort to the insurrectionists, which in itself is a crime. But one thing is clear, Joy, Clarence Thomas should be nowhere near sitting as a justice presiding over any of these decisions. But he also voted literally to protect his own wife's texts in that case. He himself should perhaps be subpoenaed. Let me just, for those of you, just to remind you what was at stake here. Here's Mo Brooks talking about what Trump wanted him to do. Did he directly tell you to fight to decertify the election, the 2020 election? He did not use the word decertify. He used the word rescind. And then immediately removed Joe Biden. I guess that would be through impeachment? Through the rescission of the election results. Did he directly say that there should be a new special election for the presidency? In one of the conversations, he mentioned having a subsequent election for the presidency. Okay. I, I am out of time, so I don't even get to ask you a question. I will just say for our audience, in my opinion, feels like a conspiracy, smells like a conspiracy, and looks like Jenny Thomas and maybe our hubby were part of it. That's just me. I'm not a lawyer and not a prosecutor. Glenn Kirshner is, but we're out of time, so he can't come it. Uh, moments of joy. Thank you very much, Glenn. Appreciate you. Moments of joy are hard to come by in war zones, but guess what? We found something that comes pretty darn close, and that is next. Don't go anywhere. One of the few bright spots during this war in Ukraine came from a seven-year-old girl named Amelia earlier this month with her rendition of Let It Go. That heartwarming video was filmed as Amelia and her family hid in a bomb shelter while Russian forces shelled the ground above. She and her family are now in Poland, where she performed Ukraine's national anthem for an audience of thousands. Take a look. And that's tonight's readout. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.